Psalm 133 is where we're going to be in tonight. And uh, a brother sent me this, this scripture this week, and and uh, and he read it, and I read it, and I sent it to Phil and John, and I, I was just uh, I thought it was um, just just I'd never it's a short psalm, but I never really had had given it much thought. You know, we've we've read it, and you you've probably read it, but but there's some enigmatic things in it that you're like, I don't even know what that means, you know, I, and, and I, hopefully we can tackle that tonight, but as I began looking at it, and I, I was just blessed by what God had, uh, uh, has, has shown in His Word, and I hope you're blessed by it as well, but I was thinking about um, just as a, as a new church, as a new church plant, I mean, that's what we are, is a new church plant, and praying that the Lord will grow through this, but this I mean, I look out and I can see a, I can see a core group here. I, I don't know where the Lord takes us, but I see a core group. But I thought this message uh, was vitally important for me to hear and to listen and to study, but I hope it's just as important for you as well. Psalm 133, um, we'll read that together. The, the title, or in, uh, like the, the, the non-Holy um, non Spirit-inspired word, the title of mine is The Excellency of Brotherly Unity. Yours may have something similar to that, but I think it's, a, I think it's very uh, fitting for this psalm. But the, the psalm, it starts, a song of ascents of David. The psalm writes, he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled to come before your word, and uh, we need you every hour. We, we need your faithfulness. For out, without your faithfulness, there's nothing good in this world. And so, Lord, we ask that this, at this moment, Lord, that... Um, that uh, we know that you've been faithful to send your spirit and how he uh, resides among us and in us, Lord. So we ask that he is the great teacher and he uh, teaches us through, through your word and, uh, and, and inspires your word, or the inspired word, Father, and illuminates it to our hearts. Father, may we be faithful to the text. May I be faithful to the text. Help us as hearers, Father, to hear your word and also to be doers of the word. That's in your name we pray. Amen. The title... Of the psalm is a is a song of descent or ascent uh, of David. It's a psalm of David. And most scholars they have uh, believe and agree that this psalm was authorized by David um, or authored by David. It is the fourteenth song of ascent written to the people of Israel, and it's it's not clear as to when the psalm was written. Uh, some have postured that this psalm may refer to David's coronation at at Hebron or or the precious sight of the, the multitudes who came from all parts of Palestine to be present in Jerusalem for the, the great national feast. This would uh, really make sense as it a song of ascent. It would be a, a song as they would sing going up into Jerusalem, as they climbed, as they, they came from all uh, the parts of the nation, as parts of Israel and Judea uh, and, and across the other uh, the nations as they, the Jews gathered back for the national feast and Jerusalem, whether it would be the Feast of the Booths or uh, which would be the Tabernacle or the Passover, whatever that may be, they would be ascending unto Jerusalem. And uh, from the valley below, the, the, the ascending to, to Jerusalem would have been a wonderful view of harmony within the Jewish people, a beauty and order and, and evidence when all the tribes gathered in Jerusalem to partake in this one of their national feasts. 
It could have been that this was written really not for a special occasion, but it may have been written at a time in Israel's history where the beauty and the power of brotherly love was set forth before the people of Israel. Others believe that the psalm refers to the time of the return of Israel from Babylonian captivity, of time when there was no longer any division within the kingdom. The jealousy of the tribes had ceased, and all who returned were incorporated into one united nation. If so, then this song was a dedication under David's past leadership. I hold to that it was probably a psalm of ascent as to when they came to uh, one of the national feasts. But however, regardless of its background, what we have here is a psalm that doesn't have one skeptical word, not one cynical word within the psalm. It is a psalm of encouragement. It is a psalm of, of, of brotherly unity and love. It's a song of sweetness, and it's, it's very light. It's very tasteful. It's, it's, it's sweet upon the lips of the listener and the, and the, and the, uh, the one who's pronouncing it. it. It stands in noble contrast to, to Psalm 120, which is another psalm of a sin. If you look at Psalm 120, you see it stands in contrast to that. Uh, it, it, psalm 120 speaks of, uh, In my trouble I cried to Yahweh. He answered me, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. It is, it is in complete opposite of what the psalmist wrote there. However, that psalm is, a psalm of, that, that psalm is full of, of war, language of war, lamentation, whereas this psalm sings of peace and pleasantness. This psalm is intended to instruct, though there aren't any imperatives within the psalm, meaning you, you need to do this and not do this, but it, yet it, it instructs us in a way that God, only God can do without even saying of giving us a command. The psalm, it speaks of unity and the, the divine blessing that accompanies brotherly unity. The, the translators have given this psalm, a, I think, a rightful and admirable he, heading, the benefit of the communion of saints. Some of yours may say that or may say something different, but to that effect. And I think that's why this psalm, although written to the Israelites, has much application for the church today as we are called the family of God, as we are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we, are, we are called, I think this has such application to the church today as we have come as a, as, as a unified body. As the church, why is it that we come together? Why do we do what we do? Why do we go to great lengths to, to, to yoke together, to, to fellowship together? Great lengths to put all these pieces together so that we sinful human beings can come together on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. Why do we do that? I mean, look at us. It's Sunday night. We could be anywhere else. We could be watching football, but we've determined that we want to yoke together. We want to fellowship together and communion together. Why do we look different than the world? You might answer it like this. You, might, you may say, well, we, uh, we, are, we are unified in Christ. We have uh, had our sins displayed before our eyes, and we, we, uh, our, uh, our hearts, they've been cut, and we have been saved. And so we as believers, we want to fellowship with one another because of what Christ has done for us. Right? You, you might say, well, the commands in Scripture say, do not forsake the assembly of the saints, the gathering of the saints, because it is good. It is a good thing to gather together. It is a good thing to be with God's people. But what is that time together like? How would you describe it is the question. We might describe why we meet together, but, why, but what does it look like? If someone's to ask you, okay, that sounds good, but, why, but what does your meeting look like? Is it a time of gnashing of teeth? Is it a time of gossiping against one another, a time of disappointment, a time of loneliness or divisiveness even? 
That's our hope. It's not. Our hope should be that our coming together is like the psalmist says, it's like precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. It's like the sweet dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And my hope is that this psalm tonight will help us to see the importance of spiritual unity. That, that it would provoke us as a young church to, to put spiritual unity to the top of our to-do list. That we be a church that would have sweet fellowship and a communion as our goal. What this psalm should do is to help us, to teach us and instruct us in, in seeing why spiritual uni is, unity is praiseworthy. Why it is something we should behold. Why it is something that we should long for. It's something that we should cause us to rearrange our lives accordingly to pursue that unity that is so good and pleasant as the psalmist says. And I want to look at it in three parts tonight. I think it breaks down in three parts. And the first one is, I believe, is verse 1, is the praise of spiritual unity. The praise of spiritual unity. You can see that in verse 1. I want you to see first the burst of joy and excitement from the psalmist over the unity of the brethren. What does he say? He says, behold, as to say, look at this wonderful sight. Stop what you're doing and gaze upon how wonderful and joyous that this society is of, of, of brothers and sisters coming together in a unified fashion, right? The unity among the brethren. It along with Psalm 134 is the only psalm that begins with this word, behold. This, this unity that the author is speaking about is, is looked upon by God with, with great approval. And therefore, it requires us, the psalmist says, is to pay attention it's something that, that gets the people looking and saying, that is something that I want to be a part of. That is something that is otherworldly. He says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. The word good, it, 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 it's, I would ask you, define it. How would you define it? John might define it one way. Phil might define it another. Scholars, philosophy scholars certainly define it other ways, Right. The Hebrew defines it as it's something that's excellent, choice. It's agreeable to the senses. And I think probably no better place that we can look at when we try to figure out what good is, no, no better place than we can see is the Bible. Right? What does the Bible say the word good means? Because to Frank, we have a lot of definitions of what good means today. We, 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 we can go back to Genesis, I think, and, and we look at creation week. And what does God say? God creates the plants, and He creates the animals, and He creates the celestial beings, and He creates the light, and He, and he separates the light from the darkness, right? And He, and he creates a water upon this formless earth, and he, and, he forms, and he forms man. And then what does He say after each one of those days? He says, it is good. God defines what is good. And then what does he say? He says, God says this about himself in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. He, he says, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says that no one is good but the Father. The psalmist in 143 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is Good, lead me in the land of uprightness. So for God to call spiritual unity good, this is the Lord speaking of this as the unity of good, then it must mean something. It must be something special, right? It's something that, that not only is beholding, but it's something that is good. And, and, and then we, spiritual unity is something that we, we can see. You see, it's tangible. It's, it's, when it's on display, it's an objective good. How excellent it is, he says, when it is, there's unity within the body of Christ or within the body of God's people. Not only 
does he say it's good or excellent, but it's subjectively pleasant, meaning that which is sweet. Some things can be good and not pleasant, right? Some things can be pleasant and not good. Ice cream is pleasant, but it's not good for for you, right? It's some may argue about that, but it's good. But but the psalmist here says that spiritual unity among the brethren is not only excellent, not only good, but it's pleasant. It's sweet. It's something that is that is altogether something that we should admire. This is what it looks like when brethren live together in unity, in harmony. This word live together means in close and intimate association with others. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not something where we're, we're, we're separated by walls or, or buildings or, or even a, some type of, not even, not even uh, of space. It's something that we dwell tightly together. Yeah, it's in association with others. This phrase is an echo of the language that we see in Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, where Moses is talking about brothers living together on the same property. And one of them dies without, without a son. Moses there is really speaking of the familial family. He's given the laws of the familial family. What happens when this brother dies and goes to the land and, and this, wife, this woman gets that husband and all those things. It, 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 he's talking about familial family, kinfolk as we say in Garland, Tennessee, right? And he speaks on how this familial family is to get along and how they're to live in close proximity together within the same tribe and with the same common area. But in our text today, the psalmist, he borrows that language. But he doesn't apply it to the familial family of sorts, such as my brother and I, such as uh, Phil and his brother, and Caleb and his brother and siblings. It's not applying it to that. He's applying it to, and extends it to this spiritual brotherhood. Here is it, he's expanding it to apply to God's covenant people. And in this context, it would be Israel. In our day today, it would be the church, right? It would be the new covenant people. But, but think about the context here for a minute. If this is a song that would have been sung as the pilgrims traveled from all over the Middle Eastern landscape back to Jerusalem to celebrate their yearly feast, then, then what a fitting song this would have been for them to sing. Imagine this. Them lugging, you think about this, they're having to lug their families, they're having to uproot from their, their, their tribes or wherever they're at across the, the, the landscape, and they're having to put whatever furnishings they need, whatever clothing they need, whatever food they need on the back of camels, whatever they could do on their backs, and, then, and they're having to go and walk long distances to, to Jerusalem. And not only that, but yet they're carrying their sacrifice animal. Their sacrificial animal may be a dove, it may be a, a goat, it may be a lamb, whatever it is, whatever they could afford, that's what they were bringing. And you have this, and you have thousands upon thousands of, of people ascending upon Jerusalem, 2,000 feet to the top of there, as they go through the narrow gate, and they're, they're shrugging uh, shoulders together, right? And, and, they're, and, they're, and they're coming together as this unified nation. And they go through the gates of Jerusalem and it's dusty streets and all this murmuring and stuff. This is the scene that would have happened as they sung this song. It was a very difficult and trying time for the pilgrims. It wouldn't have been a very easy time. So they needed a song like this before their eyes, a, a, a series of songs like this to remind them of why they were doing all this to begin with. They needed, to be, they needed to be recalibrated. They needed their hearts retuned as to what was good and what was pleasant. They, they needed to know that this is, there's a reason why we're coming to worship Yahweh in one place as a spiritual unity of Christ. Because we could have... Remember, God, I mean, Jesus says, you worship over here, I worship over here. 
But those that, that you don't have that, that you don't have those that, that you worship in the heart, right? Our heart is always worship. Our lives are always worship. But they are descending as one unified nation. So it's a beautiful picture of spiritual unity. When brother can and do dwell together in close and intimate association with each other, and they do it in unity, then that communion is worthy to be gazed upon. It's worthy to be looked and commended upon, and it's objectively good and it's subjectively pleasant. We see this in families sometimes, but oftentimes we see what? More of feuding and fighting within our families than we do, um, than we do love and stuff like that. It just happens. But I would say is, is that most of you are probably closer to some of your brothers and sisters in Christ than you are to some of your familial family. You probably know more about your brothers and sisters in Christ and love them more. Not, 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 in, a, not in a hateful way, but you, you know them more than you would your familial family. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to dwell together, right? We're called to dwell together in church fellowship. And in that fellowship, one essential matters, and that is unity within the body. That's what we're called to be. Note that dwelling together requires plurality. You, you can't participate in the blessings of God and not dwell with others. You, there isn't a, this isn't a singular sport. This song is an invitation to those who want to. It's an invitation to those who want to sit in spiritual isolation and not participate with other brothers and sisters, and to behold the joy of fellowship. The, the psalmist is saying, in so many terms, we need one another. We need each other. We can't do this alone. What's good and what's pleasant is that we're together and that we're unified. Well, it doesn't mean uniformity where we're all alike. Spurgeon puts it this way, we can dispense with uniformity if we possess unity. Meaning, the only way we live with one another with all our differences is if we have harmony within the body. John's different than I am, Phil's different than I am, but what are we doing? We're unified in Christ. We have unity. There's differences within the body, and that's a good thing. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. He says that it is joined to the Lord in one spirit. That's positional unity within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 13 speaks of it even more. He says this, For as the body is one and hath many members, and are all members of that one body, being many are one body, so is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. Paul says the church... I'm speaking to the church is, is that it's like one body. It's, that's the church. It's, it's one. The Spirit of God puts the life of God in the soul of man, and He unites them with every other one in whom that same common eternal life exists, and He draws us together in one body, Christ being the head of that body. And we are one body in Christ. We are all the sons of God, positionally one with Christ. No hierarchy, no class system, no sheep, and also no rams. There's only one in Christ. Positionally, there's an absolute equality before God. In the world, they don't know anything about this. They, they, it doesn't know anything about being unified. All the world knows is, is, is of problems of discord and disharmony and disunity. It's, it's even in the family. We have arguments and strife and quarrels and bitterness, divorce even. It's in the office at work, at school, certainly in government and politics, right? He's slave and master, woman and man, between nations, Greeks and barbarians, Jew and Gentile, constant conflict, enmity, antipathy, argument, strife, division. Disunity was just as prevalent in the ancient world as it is today. But Paul writes in Colossians 3.11 that there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. What's he saying? In, in Christ... 
all the barriers come down. When Christ came and He died, the barriers came down. No more caste system, no more classes, no more races, no more distinctions, no more uniquenesses. It's all equality within Christ. Christ, He breaks down the barriers. Dr. MacArthur, he tells of a story of a modern missionary who told that he was officiating at a communion service in a certain part of Africa in a very remote area. And he said he sat at the communion table and to his right sat a man who was known in his native language as Manly Heart. And he was the tribal chief of a people called the Ghani. And there were many Ghani, the missionary rites, in the congregation. And the old chief told him that he could remember the days before they heard of Christ. And he said those were the days when the young warriors of the Ghani went out to bloody their spears with the blood of their neighboring tribes, the Sangha and the Tumbaka. And the old chief told the missionary that they would come back with their spears completely blooded, behind them a trail of burned and devastated towns, and dragging along with them raped women as their booty, taken from the Sangha and the Tumbaka tribes. But now the chief said it's all different. And the missionary said, that's right. Because sitting on his left hand were the elders from the church among the Sangha and the Tumbaka. All three tribes, once thirsting for each other's blood, now one in the blood, in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Christianity is about. That's what it is intended to do to break down the fences, the barriers between us. And that's what happened at the cross. Forgiveness. Sin taken away, done away with, no barrier left. We all became one in Christ. And you have two men in Christ, two totally different men, yet they're always one with each other. Why? Because it is the blood of Christ that removed the problem of sin. Every single person who's ever been redeemed from the time of Adam to the last human being that ever lives is redeemed because he stands at the foot of Christ. True unity can't be explained by the world. True unity can't happen in the world with peace talks and ceasefires and otherworldly powers. True unity can only be defined by God Himself. Spiritual unity, it can only happen within the power of God Himself. And it can only happen when we die to ourselves and look to the great unifier in Christ. It is Christ who unifies us. And and, and the psalmist says, it is good and it is pleasant when we are unified. Number two, the images of spiritual unity. I want you to see not not only the praise of spiritual unity. But I want you to see the two images of spiritual unity. Verse 2. The psalmist says in verse 2 that spiritual unity is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. You say, do what? What are you talking about? I've read this many a times and I don't know what you're talking about. It's coming down Aaron's head? I just I picture John. I do picture this 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 head coming down. No, I love it, right? John, you need a big beard, right? No, he he. What does oil and head and a beard and a robe have anything to do with spiritual unity? Well, the psalmist intends to show us what spiritual unity looks like, beginning with Aaron, who was our high, who was the high priest. Let's understand what the oil represented. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 7, in chapter 30, verse 30, we see that Aaron and his sons were to be anointed with this oil, this consecrating them for the priestly service. We see the recipe for this anointing oil. In Exodus 30, starting in verse 22, it contained the finest spices, myrrh, cinnamon, cane, cassia, and olive oil. Verse 25 says, You shall make from these a holy anointing oil, a fragrant mixture of ointments, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. 
and, and they were to take this anointing oil and, and anoint the, the tent of meeting, right? You read through there and they were to anoint the ark and they were to anoint the, the table of showbread and the lampstand and the altar of incense and all the articles within the holy place that were set apart for God's worship. This was to consecrate them for worship. It was to set them apart for the strict worship of Yahweh. And not only were these articles to be anointed, but the Aaron and his sons were to be anointed with it because they were used in God's worship, right? In the sacrifices and, and, and the worship of God. Through They were the intercessories. They were the mediators. But I want you to understand that it's not the anointing oil that was special and that gave these guys superhuman strength or made them super religious or caused them to go to the next level of spiritual oneness with God. Don't go look on Amazon today and go look for uh, anointing oil. You will find it. Our Pentecostal friends will sell it to you at half the cost, okay? There's nothing powerful in the oil. It's not what was made. It's not what it was made of components, but it's what it represented. It, 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 the entire ceremony demonstrated the ordination and involvement of God to set the high priest apart and convey a special bless, blessing of God from himself. Aaron and the high priest could not minister until they were anointed with the oil. This setting apart, it was necessary for only the high priest could enter the inner parts of the tabernacle in order to offer the sacrifices that would cover the sin of the people. If you remember, it was the old covenant priest stood between the presence of God in his sanctuary and the ordinary Israelites bearing the blood of the sacrifices and and atoning for the people's sins so that they would not be destroyed. Aaron and his son served this intercessory and mediatorial role. They represented the people before God. And not only did they represent the people before God, but he represented God before the people. And so this was why the oil was placed on the head of the high priest, so that they could be useful in the Lord's service. And as the oil was placed on their heads, picturing a rich spiritual blessing... But it wouldn't remain there. Gravity takes effect. It would soon run down upon the priest's beard. And, then it, it didn't, and it wasn't confined to one place and it would run to the robe. And it doesn't just drip onto any priest's beard. The psalmist says even Aaron's beard. Although there were many priests and Levites in ancient Israel, there was only one Aaron. Only one high priest in whom the priesthood was consecrated. The other priests and Levites, they had their duties, but in the end... What they did was only a reflection of the high priestly duties of Aaron. The high priest alone could enter into the holy place daily in the most holy place once a year. And the glories and splendor of Aaron's dress, his robe, as compared to that of the other priests, show that the high priest was the fullest expression and the representative of the priesthood and its priests. Remember the high priest, he bore the onyxes and the rubies of symbolized the, what, each tribe in, in Israel. He represented the people before God and he goes into the high place and the holy of places. Not only did the oil drip from Aaron's head to the beard, but it came down onto the edges of Aaron's robe. You see, Aaron represented not only his fellow tribesmen, but the entire nation of Israel. The high priest did his work on behalf of the people, serving as an intermediary between the holy creator and his sinful people. And we need to understand that worshiping Yahweh was a serious and sacred responsibility. And it was specifically prescribed. They didn't just worship Yahweh how they thought they needed to worship Him. They didn't just come up with certain rules and regulations uh, on their own and say, this is how we're going to worship God. No, they went to the temple and they worshiped God as He had prescribed and as He had said and under the threat of death. Worship was serious within Israel. The ministry that was set up here was a representative ministry. It was an intercessory ministry. It was a mediatorial ministry. So what? You say, what, what about it? What's happening here? The picture is of oil poured on the high priest's head and once set in motion, 
one could not contain it. One could not cease its motion, and the ceremony was prescribed by God for the consecration of His set-apart people. You say, what does that have to do with unity? As the people looked at the priesthood, specifically Aaron, and his high priestly duties, and he looked at the ceremonial process of cleansing and being set apart, they would be reminded of the seriousness of worship. And he wants them to see what they ought to take serious, and that is spiritual fellowship and spiritual unity. Just as the oil and that ceremonial practice was not made by human invention, spiritual unity is not something that we can, we can uh, contrive. Spiritual unity, brotherly love, comes down. It flows from above. The psalmist uses that terminology three times. Coming down upon the beard. Coming down upon the robe. Coming down upon the mountains of Zion. These, these, our spiritual act of worship, this worship is not something we set forth. It is something that comes from God. Our spiritual unity is something that is, is, is sacred. It comes from God. Spiritual unity is a gift from God. And like that oil which comes down on the head and it flows downward upon everything else, so is spiritual unity from our divine source from above. Our spiritual unity isn't something that we can contrive. It's something that is supernatural. It's from above. Jesus prayed to the Father in the garden that we would be unified. And we have that unity only in Christ. Only in Christ do we have spiritual unity. And just as that unity is so graciously and lavished upon us in Christ, in the same way Christian love and harmony cannot help but spread blessing to the entire body. It runs down from the head and it, and it covers the entire priest and covers what it intends to consume. Christian love uh, cannot be contained. Spurgeon says brotherly love comes from the head, but it falls to the feet. Brotherly love, our spiritual unity, only comes from our head, Jesus Christ, and it lows downward to every crevice of our lives. You can't contain it. Love for the brethren condescends to the lowliest of man. It isn't puffed up, yet it is lowly and meek. As, as the oil is emitted, its lovely fragrance to those around the ceremony of Aaron and the priest as it was poured out on his head, so does brotherly love, so does brotherly uni unity emit its sweet fragrance of benevolent power and blessings to all who are beneath its influence. That's the picture that we see. That's why he says it's like, it's like oil flowing down upon the head of Aaron and the beard and the robe. That's what brotherly love is and spiritual unity is. It can't contain it when it's done right. It's good, it's pleasant, it's something to behold, and you can't contain it. Our fellowship as believers should not just be contained to one place. It's not contained just to the proverbial head of the high priest. No, our spiritual unity, our brotherhood, our bonds, our kinship, our sonship extends from us to all, especially those within the family of God. It extends to our families, to our friends, to our workplaces, to our places of worship or you know, on Sunday mornings or evenings. It extends to the doorsteps of our neighbors' houses. It extends to our ministries, to our small groups, to our enemies, to the lost. We've been united in Christ. You could travel across the entire globe and meet other believers and you have more in common with them than most of us have to do with our siblings that live in our household. It, brotherly love, it extends across this whole world because of Christ. The barrier's been lifted. If you love God, then you love God's people. You don't go at it alone. It's not designed to go at it alone. It's designed to have great fellowship with the saints and be this picture of this great unity that we see within the Trinity. Think about it. Approximately 59 times in the New Testament passages, we see a command that teaches us how and how we're to relate to one another. The one another passages. Can you do those one another passages singularly? I can't do one another to someone if I don't have someone there with me. It's a plurality. 
We need each other. That's why healthy churches practice church membership. It's fundamental to what it means to be a part of a fellowship. It rejects autonomy and it embraces community fellowship and it embraces accountability and embraces submission for the sake of our souls. It's one thing to go to church. It's another to belong to a church and be a part of a church and to serve in a church. When we see believers being the hands and feet of Jesus and cooperating in spiritual unity and using their spiritual gifts in a manner that edifies the church, then we should behold it. We should say that's good and that's pleasant. We should see what a blessing God has bestowed upon us as He's united us in His Son from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But not only is unity like a fragrant anointing oil poured over the head of Aaron, but the psalmist says it's like the dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion. Someone called it Mountain Dew. It's Mountain Dew. It's like Mountain Dew. You say, what is Herman? I don't even know what Herman is. Never heard of Herman. I don't even know who, who is Herman. Herman who? I don't know. Mount Herman, literally the sacred mountain, is the highest mountain in ancient Israel, the summit being a little over 9,000 feet. It's known for its snow-capped peaks. We see it also being called Syrian by the Sidonians and Sinar by the Amorites in Deuteronomy 3, 9. And their names meant breastplate, like referring to the mountain's rounded snow-top crest that gleam in the sunlight. Mount Hermon was significant in the Bible for several reasons. One, it marked for the northern limits of the promised land conquered by Joshua. Joshua eleven seventeen from Mount Halak, which rises towards the air as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kinds and struck them and put them to death. Mount Hermon also formed the northern boundary of the territory, inherited by the half-tribe of Manasseh, as well as the northern border of Israel in general. But Mount Hermon was also known for its profuse amounts of dew that fell upon it. In fact, you could go there today and most people that have visited it says the dew is unlike, it's like a fresh rainfall that has fallen. This would be the reason for its snow-capped mountains most of the year. There was a perpetual freshness, a perpetual coolness, a dampness that nourished the valley below. Contrast that with Mount Zion, which is 2,000 feet in elevation, which is south of the mountain and about 117 miles south of there, but it is in a drier, arid climate within Israel. It's not as cool. It's not as damp. It's dry. It's dusty. It's like being in Arizona. And, 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 and I, don't, I, don't see a, I don't really see a meteorological or climactic effect here of the dew. Somehow traveling some 120 miles from Mount Hermon, down through all these valleys and stuff and ended up on Mount Zion. We just, I don't, we don't see this climatic event or this geological event or the meteorological event. I don't believe that's what the psalmist is trying to, to get at. But, but what I do see, I think we see, is this picture of two fundamentally different areas. One is cool and fresh and moist, refreshing the other. The other is the arid and dry and hot and dusty. There's a huge contrast here, I think, that, that, that the psalmist is trying to get at. One's lush, one's flourishing. The other, where the pilgrims were traveling to, up that steep mountain to the temple, through the dusty streets, with all these people and animals and, and stinking and, and, and dusty and their feet were dusty. You know, it, it stood in contrast to what, what Zion and Mount Hermon. The poetry here is telling us of spiritual unity as if, as like the dew of Hermon, it flows down and somehow it appears upon Mount Zion. It's as if this refreshing, cool, fresh 
lush climate was brought from Mount Zion or Mount Hermon and set upon on top of Mount Zion. It, it would have been a refreshing thought. It, it wouldn't have been a realistic thought as though this was something that could have happened. This actually would have been something that would have been supernatural. It's as if we went out in, 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 August, in, our, in August and we went down to the river and said, it is going to snow today. Not going to happen here, right? It's not going to happen, but it's supernatural. This wouldn't have happened in Zion. But what David, I think, is picturing here is that as these pilgrims, as they ascended upon the city of Jerusalem for this worship festival in hopes of this brotherly spiritual unity, it would be as refreshing as those far-off mountains are as the dew covers them. It's like that. This is what our brotherly unity ought to be like, as refreshing as the mountains of Mount Hermon. The first illustration shows us how sacred unity is. It's very sacred, how it comes from God. That it's not by man's design. Man can't design this. Man can't design a spiritual unity. Try it. It won't last very long. The second illustration shows us how spiritual unity is divine. It's sacred and it's divine. It's from above. Hermon's dew, it doesn't fall on Mount Zion's hill. It's 120 miles away. It can't happen. But as David sees this unity playing out before his eyes, the blessing of unity within God's people, he sees it not only sacred, but he sees it as a divine miracle. And what's this teach us about spiritual unity tonight? That it cannot happen within our own selves. It, it, it can't be stirred up. It can't be pulling ourselves up by the boot, bootstraps. It must be from a divine source. And the last point, and it's quick, is the blessing of spiritual unity. I want you to see the blessing of spiritual unity. Finally, we see the blessing of it. The psalmist maintains that there at Zion, where the brethren dwell closely with one another in unity, Yahweh bestows His blessing. It's Yahweh who has commanded the blessing. It's by sovereign decree. God orders His grace to be bestowed upon where His people live together in harmony. Spurgeon says, where love reigns, God reigns. It's, it's where this true unity is found that God sends the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This blessing is the eternal favor that God pours out upon His people. It's what is good and what is pleasant. It's where there is unity among the brethren. We know that it is sent by God. That was the whole point of the two pictures he gives us in verses 2 and 3. Unity is a product of God, not men. It doesn't just happen. It's not a country club. It's a divine blessing that God bestows upon those who are in his family. It's not only where he bestows his blessing, but it's where God commands life forevermore, which is the fullness of life or abundant life. It doesn't mean that it's unity which causes eternal life. That's works, right? That's not how this works. That's not what he's saying. So what does he mean by that God commands the blessing, and then he pronounced it as, as eternal life. I believe what he means here is, is that among united brethren is where God issues the fullest experience of His grace. Dwelling together in unity and love, we, begin, we have begun the enjoyments of eternity today. We share in His kind of life, life eternal today. If you are saved and you're in Christ, you don't have to wait for eternity. 
You have those benefits today. You don't have to wait until you're dead to enjoy them. You have them now, and it comes from what? The dwelling of one another together, which is good and pleasant. It's something to behold. Now, we only know this in part. We don't, we don't dwell in unity together as we should. We still have this sinful flesh that we have to put off, but we know one day that when we die, we will experience true, unadulterated unity. When we're giving our glorified bodies and we're without sin and we're standing in the heavenly Mount Zion, worshiping the King who has caused us to be unified, Unified. The unity that Israel knew, it was just a foretaste of what was to come. It was just a foreshadow of what the Holy Spirit would do at Pentecost, where the distinctions between Jew and Gentile were obliterated, where the Jewish people, they were drawn into loving bonds with Gentile people, and they were given a common life. It was a foreshadow of the unity that Christ prayed for when He prayed to the Father. In John chapter 17, verse 11, He says that I am no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given them, so that they may be one just as we are. Verse 21, I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying for the unity of our brothers and sisters here. That's what he's praying for, this essential, internal unity, the future salvation of the elect is what he's praying for. But the Lord... He has a reason for our unity in the life. That's salvific unity, right? That we're united. That's that, that's that positional unity that we have in Christ. But it, but, it, but it doesn't just stop there. It keeps going. He says in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. If we live the kind of lives that we ought to live consistent with what God has done for us and in us, the world is going to see a massive transformation. If the world is going to see this internal unity, there's going to be an attraction to the gospel. Philippians chapter 2 says, we shall Shine as lights within the world, holding forth the word of life. And then he prays once again in verse 23 for unity. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Again, it's this desire for unity while we're in the world. He's praying for while we're in the world, so that the world may know that you sent me. This is it. This is what spiritual unity does within the body of Christ. This is the blessing of spiritual unity. This is what David is ultimately pointing to. Remember, David didn't see it. He only saw just a glimmer of it in Israel's time. He only saw a very, very small glimmer. But yet I believe David is pointing to this, this, future, uh, um, uh, uh, this future unity that, that, that it is ultimately good and it is pleasant. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 and 6, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians 3.14, beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The church is to be about love, right? John 13, 35 through 36, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. What? if you have love for one another. That's a, that's a precursor to Jesus' prayer in John 17. And only by spiritual unity, this unity that ultimately comes from God, will people come to know who are His true disciples. There is great strength in unity. Together, as we stand as one, as we stand as Grace Bible Church tonight, we have combined strength, able to resist and able to overcome our greatest enemy, Satan. Unity is what God desires for His people to promote. Unity is what Satan dreads and works to undo. Unity is what Jesus prayed for and what the Holy Spirit came to achieve. Unity is what will convince the world of the gospel. Unity is a precious commodity for which we must all strive. May we not have a love that is fickle. 
that comes and goes, but may our love be like the anointing oil that flows down from Aaron's head onto his beard and to his, into his priestly garments. May it be like the refreshing dew and the nourishing moisture that flows down from Mount Hermon to Mount Zion. May our love for one another be a love that dwells together and dwells richly within Christ. What David saw that day when he penned those words was something glorious. It was something otherworldly. David never really saw it in his day. Just a glimmer. But that quickly diminished. David was confident of these words, that life forever. He was confident that one day this spiritual unity would be made full in heaven. And he longed for that day. We should long for that day. Heaven is a place that is full of unity and fellowship and love, a place where God has brought His people who He knew in eternity past from every tongue, tribe, and nation and unites them in His Spirit through the life and death of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. What we share today in our local, church, local churches, not just here but other local churches, is oh but a foretaste of the unity we will have in the heavenly Zion in the presence of Christ, the great unifier. Folks, the world needs the church to be unified today. We're going to spend eternity together and we want to make it work right here so we the world will know, so the world will really know who we belong to and that they'll believe our gospel. And that takes spiritual unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it is convicting and how it ultimately drives us to Christ. Lord, we ask that we desire to maintain Christianity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask that you enable us by your Spirit to be patient and long-suffering with them as we fellowship with them. May we forgive others as you have forgiven us. May the world know we are Christians by our love. May we be united as Grace Bible Church. May we be united. May we follow your word. And may we be something to behold. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Our great unifier. I have nothing to bring to the table. I'm just a member within this body. Lord, but may we be united together with Christ as our head. And may it, may it be sweet and good and pleasant and ever-flowing, just like Aaron's, like the oil over Aaron's beard. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.